go to the word of the Lord now, and uh, let's focus now in a different way on all these truths that we have been celebrating and uh, rehearsing and enacting and declaring this morning. Let's put it in a different focus. I want to lead us to Second Chronicles, a memorable passage, well known. It has uh, impacted my life throughout the years, filled me with images of inspiration. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 20, the well-known passage, I hope for you, Jehoshaphat, be, be uh, surrounded by uh, an enemy army and um, turning to the Lord for response. And, you know, we're, we've been uh, focusing these days on the God who fights our battles. The God who fights our battles. That doesn't mean that we don't have a, pro- a part to play. Yes, but uh, the victory is his. And it's in that interaction between our own initiative and efforts and God's power acting on our behalf that victories are won in the life of the believer. So uh, chapter 20, verse, uh, begin, let's, it's a long passage. I won't read it all. I'll, I'll uh, you know, talk about it as we go. Um, but um, it says that after this, by the way, what is after this? What is the this? The this is all kinds of uh, spiritual reforms that Jehoshaphat has enacted in order to bring um, Judah, remember Judah, Israel, one nation, but divided at that point. And like we are, it occurs to me even now, America has two, really. And it is kind of like a Judah and an Israel uh, in a way, you know. I don't want to polarize too much or oversimplify. But in reality, when you look at the essence of uh, the two wars, uh, the, the two factions that are battling for the heart of America, you do have a kind of a, an unbelieving sector and a sector that imperfectly, yes, with all its mistakes and all the accusations that can be leveled against it, but is, I think, battling on the right side of God's will. And uh, sometimes we let, forgive me, I'm getting into the rabbit trail here. But yes, I mean, sometimes let, let's not allow ourselves to be distracted by the imperfections of the side right now that is engaged in seeking to bring America back to its roots. There are imperfections. Every human process, every human historical process, including the coming of the pilgrims to America, is, was fraught with all kinds of imperfections, especially when they finally decided to establish a republic and the rubber hit the road here in Massachusetts and in other parts of America. Yes, all kinds of things, all kinds of accusations. What human process has not been accompanied by mistakes oversimplifications, unholy alliances, imperfections of the leaders that lead it. Come on, nothing would be done on earth on earth if we expected perfection. But I want to say to you, and that's just part of my challenge to us as a congregation, that there are, yeah, the Lord just gave me that thought right now. There is a Judah and there is a, an Israel right now in America. And we are divided, we are polarized. And we can talk about that more, but let me get out of there quick before I end up... Um, enmeshed in that particular thing. After this, so uh, Jehoshaphat en- enacts all kinds of uh, reforms, spiritual reforms. He is engaged. He's for the Lord. He is for the Spirit. He wants to bring his nation back to God. And after he does all of these heroic things, after that, instead of the Lord saying, hey, uh, Jehoshaphat, great job, and I'm going to give you some relief. Go on vacation. Rest. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to relieve you from every sort of a difficulty and uh, stress. No, the stress is amplified. It's cranked up to an almost intolerable level. The Moabites and Ammonites 
with some of the Meunites, came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. So things get really, really heated. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It is already in Hazazon Tamar, that is En Gedi. We will go to En Gedi, by the way. I believe this, this trip. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire. Notice the language. Resolved to inquire. That's very profound right there. Of the Lord. And he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the, of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. Uh, I'm going to skip because beautiful poetic language of worship and all kinds of things that I hope to decode for us later on. But let's go further down. Uh, <clears throat> verse 12. Our God, this is sort of coming to his, the essence of his petition. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do. But our eyes are on you. The essence, the essence of prayer and of the human situation that leads us to seek God's intervention on our behalf. A sense of impotence, a sense of unworthiness, a sense of I cannot do this. This challenge is just too much for me. And so what do I do? Do I just wring my hands in despair? Do I mire and I get mired in anxiety? Or do I look toward as, as the psalmist says, I look up to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord. Amen. And that's what we do as believers, no? And verse 13 says that all the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. A pregnant moment of expectation. Prayer has been declared. Petition has been declared. Despair has been acknowledged. And then this, the air is sucked out. Of that extraordinary gathering. There's a silence. It's a pregnant silence of expectation. What are you going to do now, Lord? Then the spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benahiah, the son of Jael. He had a long last name. The son of Mataniah, a Levite and descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. And he said, imagine, imagine for a moment, huge assembly, the courtyard of the temple. And that, that, I can see it because we've been there. We've seen the, the temple court that now, by the way, is occupied by two major um, mosques, um, which is a symbol, again, of what happens when people forget the Lord. It's over, our places are overtaken by the enemy. And... Uh, he said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. The church needs that kind of authority, not to be in awe of human authorities. This man is speaking to a disciple, really. Divine authority is speaking to human authority with absolute confidence and absolute authority from God and clarity 
as to what needs to be done. Jehaziel in this moment is not just a prophet of many that might have been in, in, in the people of Israel. Jehaziel is the voice of God speaking to a puny man who happens to be king. And the church needs to understand that the church is God's authority. The church is the source of God's wisdom. The church is the provider of solutions for this time. It is not the president of the United States. It is not the ruling party. It is not even the Supreme Court. The processes that America is living right now and that the whole world, by the way, is living in travail as it finds itself need to be illuminated by the voice of the church, the prophetic voice of the church, the prophets and apostles that God wants to raise up that can speak with the authority and the complexity and the certainty that only revelation from God provides. And that is what is missing. That is the piece of the equation right now that is missing. The church is doing some things, but um, there is a voice of uh, lucidity, a voice of balance, a voice that is uh, from another world, a voice that is not temporal, a voice that speaks with the millennial authority of the kingdom of God beyond the, 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 the clouds and all the storms that atmosphere creates. It has to be above that. All the little changes and all the little, you know, fickleness of a, of a human agency. The church speaks with a different voice. It's neither Republican. It's not Democrat. It is a voice of eternity. And that voice will alienate both sides. Both sides. That voice will create problems for, for both sides. Because God is a confrontative God. The kingdom of God confronts all of the stupidity of human limitation. And this is what Jehaziel, he embodies that voice. He says, listen, King Jehoshaphat, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours. That is the essence of this presentation that I'm making here. Always listen to these two, three, four sermons in the light of this fact. And God is telling you that, not only in the collective scope of a, a nation or collectivity, but you, your life, your struggle, my struggle, the dramas that we are living out every day in our lives, whatever it might be. You may be a college student thinking about your future, struggling with courses and classes and teachers and what you're going to study and make, major in. You may be a mother, a single mom, dealing with all the struggles of, you know, finances and, and discipline and wayward children. You may be a homeless person being forced to go from shelter to shelter and, and just in despair. Lord, when are you going to give me a place where I can call my own? Whatever it might be, this is the same thing, the same dynamic. This is why these passages are left there for us. They're, 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 pass they're symbolic representative passages. They're there for us to find the structure of the passage. Let go of all the foliage around it, the specific historical pieces and, 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 and details of it. Go to the structure. Go to the, the basis. That you can apply to your own life. That has no historical detail. That is simply the way God acts. That is simply the way the kingdom moves. That is simply the way, of, the, the way believers appropriate themselves of the principles of the kingdom and we fight our battles. That's what this is. Forget about Jehoshaphat. Put your name there. 
Forget about Jehaziel and put the name of prophetic voices that need to be raised to give insight and, and wisdom and strategy to the church. How to fight its battles. The battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. Go out to face them tomorrow, end of 17. And the Lord will be with you. Let me leave it there and then let's, let's uh, Father, it's your word. As we read it, already impregnate us with it and let it bear fruit in our lives. So again, this idea of this God who stands in our place and fights our battles. This idea of war. All of these passages that I'm going to read involve conflict, all of them. And I, I will go to the New Testament. By the way, the Old Testament, prophetic people generally get a lot of their material from the Old Testament. And that's because of the nature of the Old Testament. It's not that the New Testament doesn't have equally important passages. I think I would say that the New Testament is more kind of declarative. The New Testament is more doctrinal. It's more interpretive. The Old Testament is narrative. The Old Testament gives you the raw pieces of meat there for you to eat it and, and your system to digest it. And the Old Testament, because of the historical context in, in which it is given, a context of conquering of new land, a, con a, a context of being surrounded by enemy armies and tribes, just as Israel is now, lends itself to that kind of conflictive perspective, which I think often for people who are in the kingdom is quite important. One of the things about evangelicalism in America and in many uh, civilized countries is that we have become so sophisticated that we prefer more the, the declarative nature of the, Old, of the New Testament. And we somehow believe that um, the Old Testament has been superseded. It has been overcome and overtaken by the New Testament. And so we become parties of the New Testament or the Old Testament. We become parties of the red lines that underline or the letters of, of the gospel of Jesus' words. It is one unit, my people. It is one unit. And there's a lot to be learned from the Old Testament. And I think the church needs to recover its warlike mentality in the 21st century. It is not politically correct. It doesn't tickle the intellect to speak of war in the context of Christianity. But it is biblical. I prefer to be biblical than to be fashionable. And if you are the people, if we are the people of God, we are at war. Okay? This is why this congregation is called Congregation the Lion of Judah. A lion fights. A lion conquers. A lion roars. A lion is in perpetual war for its food. And it will tear down to eat. And uh, there is uh, an iteration of Jesus for the 21st century. It's not the lamb. It is the lion. Although they're not exclusive. It is both. But there's a roaring aspect of Jesus that needs to be reconquered for the 21st century. Again, this is what evangelicals do not understand in America right now. I believe that Christianity today, evangelicals, and forgive me if I'm being a little bold here, if I alienate you. But um, there's a lot of evangelicals who don't understand that we are moving in a context of war like never before. Okay? And that therefore our attitudes, when a nation is in war... All kinds of powers are given to the executives and to the government. And, and all kinds of freedom is given because it is at war. When peace returns, then you get back to normality. Long story there. We don't need to get too far into that also. 
But the fact is that many Christians refuse to believe, many Christians in America refuse to understand that we are at war, we are spiritual war. And by the way, if you are a believer, by the very nature of who you are, you are at war. For 2,000 years, the church of Jesus Christ has been at war, and they will continue to be at war until the celebration of the, of the wedding of the Lamb. Amen. The Bible says the kingdom of God moves how? Forcefully. There's another word, violently. In the Greek original, there is that implication of violence, forceful moving, overcoming of opposition. When um, uh, Hannah and when Simeon prophesies about the nature of this child that is barely beginning his ministry and his life, the sacred thing that stands before him, takes him in his arm, and he says, this child, among other things, he says, he, he will be, um, he's being raised for the, the raising of many and the falling down of many. He says that, he will, that this child will provoke controversy. And Jesus has always been a provoker of controversy because he's at war with the powers of the devil. And the church, by its very nature, is in war. You are engaged in war, Amen. even if you don't know it. Amen. And we need to recover that, that perspective of war. And you will see many images of war in these passages. The, the, the Bible says that uh, our, our struggle, our war, is not against uh, flesh or blood, but against principalities and powers, against the governors of the, uh, the, uh, the uh, darkness of this world. Contra, contra huestes de maldad, against hosts of evil in the heavenly places. This is what we are against. The Bible also says... Be um, alert and sober for your enemy, Satan, like a, like a roving lion, is roving around seeking to whom, whom to devour. This is the nature of the Christian walk. And even as we enjoy life and we celebrate goodness and we go out to the movies and we go on vacation and, uh, you know, we enjoy the fruits of our labor we must understand that we do so in a context of war and that we cannot let our guard down. And we have to cultivate this capacity to be both at war and to be relaxed. I would not doubt that right now there's a few demons right here taking notes of this sermon while they smoke a pipe or a cigar or whatever it is. The Lord rebuke them. Uh, a sanctuary, a human sanctuary is not... Uh, you know, somehow protected. Satan enters into the very throne of God. But that doesn't, that doesn't force me to lose sleep. I, I go to bed and, you know, I know there's probably a couple of demons right there trying to invade my sleep. I don't care. I'll, I'll, I, I will bind them and I will go to bed and I'll sleep nicely, generally. We, we, we inhabit a world penetrated by evil. Just as right now, if you were able to see an x-ray of the air in this uh, room, you would see billions and billions of, of uh, germs. Now, do you lose sleep over that? Do you get all of a sudden all riled up because there are germs? If you do, I have a good psychiatrist I want to recommend to you. <laughs> we know. We know that the nature of the world is contaminated. Look at the cold coronavirus. Those are just eruptions of a natural state. But, of course, if you have good... Resistance, if you have good hygiene, if you have good health, those things don't bother you. Well, demons are like that. Demons are myriad in number. 
and they exist all over. They're, they're surrounded. Your fight is against that. You are surrounded by evil, seeking to destroy, kill, steal, seeking to kill your peace, seeking to kill your children, seeking to kill your health, your finances, your state of mind. And you must learn to wage spiritual warfare even as you breathe. These, these stories are just simply, simply ways of alerting us to the nature of the Christian situation, what we face. And so when uh, Jehoshaphat, after engaging in all these reforms, all of a sudden finds himself surrounded by an enemy army, of course he's terrified. And by the way, this is important also. This, this passage is so deep, I think I'm going to have to just maybe break it up into two pieces at some point. But this is the thing. Never be surprised when you come into struggle and crisis in your life. Never be surprised when you have to struggle in your life. The Bible, I, I, there's a passage coming through my head right now about, you know, don't be surprised at this, uh, at the, this fiery furnace that you have uh, been involved in. I think it's 2 Peter or 1 Peter. As if something strange were happening to you, he says. This is the f- stuff of Christian existence. The more you serve God, the more pleasing you are to God, the more the enemy will try to come against you. Jot that down. If you are serving the Lord, you're doing wonderful things for the kingdom. You are fighting on behalf of the kingdom. You are representing a threat against the kingdom of God. Know that the forces of of hell will come against you trying to neutralize you. Many times, your trials, your difficulties, your obstacles will be the greatest proof of God's pleasure in your life and the greatest affirmation of your walk in the kingdom. Jehoshaphat was pleasing to God, and of course, he would come against uh, all kinds of uh, trials and tribulations. And never be surprised about that. This is why we need to live life with good hygiene, good spiritual hygiene, good spiritual practices. Strengthening us, keeping us strong, keeping us rooted to the Word of God. This is why you need to root yourself in the Word of God. It's not just in, in the podcasts and, uh, you know, nice uh, books uh, that, that please your ear. You need to eat of the stuff of the Word. You need to digest the Word of God. You need to live in these archetypes, in these images of the Word. This, this needs to format your mind. And that only comes after years and years and years of eating of this stuff every day. Because these are the patterns that when, when the time comes, will kick in automatically. Just like a soldier, after practicing the same exercise over and over and over and over again, when he's, the bullets are flying past him, he has one thousandth of a second to make a decision. The practices of warfare are so instilled in him or her that he can react in an instant, instinctively. And this is the way you need to, and this is what happens here. You know, we are at war, and we need to be digesting the word. We need to be strong. We need to be in good health. We need to be feasting on all this nourishment of the word of God so that when crisis comes, then you're ready for it. And you can even just swat the insects away when they're trying to bite you without even knowing that you're doing it. And so we see here that Jehoshaphat, terrified by this announcement that an army is coming toward him, he reacts. What does he do? His instinct is not to wring his hands in despair, no. It says here that um, he resolved to inquire of the Lord and he proclaimed the fast for all Judah. Notice that forceful language, he resolved. When you're in crisis, you know what the, the, the natural inclination is? 
Put yourself in a hole, dig it deep, and put your head as far into it as you can. That's what it is. The, the natural tendency is to take the thickest blanket in your bed and just put it right over your head and put some music by Brahms or by Bach, all somber and minor, and to just feast in your depression. That is the, tend the natural tendency. But the believer resolves. The believer goes counter-cultural, counter-intuitive. He, he, she decides, no, I'm going to seek help from the Lord. I'm going to overcome my despair. I'm going to overcome my panic. I'm going to do what I've been taught that I need to do. The apostle Paul says, hey, instead of, uh, instead of being anxious, just do not be anxious in, uh, with anything, but pray. Philippians. This is why he, how he could keep healthy in a depressing jail, a Roman jail. He prayed. He focused on that powerful Lord. He focused on the kingdom advancing despite the efforts of the enemy to kill him. So you got to resolve. In the Christian life, it's about resolving. In a wintry Sunday morning when the weather is crazy and, uh, you know, one foot of snow... Only a few people resolve to come to the house of the Lord. Now, I understand there may be many people who can't for many reasons, parking and so on and so forth. But, you know, I love those four or five, those few who frustrate me when I trudge to the house of the Lord on a Sunday like that. And there have been some of those. And they frustrate me because I was hoping that nobody would show up so I could go home and spend the day <laughs> with my wife and just uh, drink hot chocolate the whole morning. But they're here, <laughs> wagging their tails, happy that they're in the house of the Lord. So... We got we to gotta have service. We got to have church. Praise the Lord. I love those people. I love those crazy, faithful few who come because they want us. They, 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 they understand that uh, the lamp of the temple needs to be open and, you know, a flame. It needs to be shining. The lamp of the kingdom should never go down. There should be two or three hands raised and worshiping Jehovah. And you have to resolve. You have to resolve on a Wednesday night to come to church. You have to resolve to read the word because there's a thousand things that will compete with you. As soon as you open your, your cell phone, what happens? Google invades you immediately with 700 alternatives. Fox will give you this crazy stuff about the lady who got beheaded and then her head was glued back on and she was alive again and all kinds of <laughs> stupid stuff and... Uh, you know, see this actress uh, 70 years later, how she looks now. And, you know, you have to resolve to say, no, I'm going to go straight to the Word. I'm going to read the Word. I'm going to meditate on the Word of God. You got to resolve. You got to resolve. So he resolved to inquire of the Lord. Listen, when you find yourself in a crisis situation, don't, uh, improv don't improvise. Don't start flailing your hands like crazy and adopting all kinds of alternatives and, you know, just uh, screaming in, in an undisciplined sort of way at your crisis. Inquire. Inquire of the Lord. Ask him, Father, why? What is the nature of what is happening at this moment? What is the, what is the, 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 the secret behind what I am experiencing? Where does it come from? Don't ask why me. That's not it. No, no. Why? What are you trying to teach me? What is, what is the nature of this situation? 
what am I contending with? Is it mere neurosis or is it demonic infestation? Is it circumstantial or is it uh, divinely ordained? Do I fight uh, with this weapon or that weapon? David is classic in that sense. Lord, how shall I go against them, he says. And the Lord says, well, just wait. When you hear the rustling of the leaves on top of the trees, then you know that I'm moving. Now go ahead and then destroy them. Go after them. God is the God of strategy. I've always known that. When you're fighting a battle, seek strategy from the Lord. I have experienced all through my life a God who speaks, a God who gives direction to his children. He does not leave us alone when we are fighting the battle for the souls of our children or for our own emotional struggles or financial struggles. Don't fight it alone. Inquire of the Lord. Go to the temple inside your soul and ask the Lord, Father, define this for me. What is it? How do I name it? You have to name your giants, I've always said. You have to give them a last name even and social security number. <laughs> you have to determine what it is that you're fighting against. And you have to ask the Lord to give you the diagnosis. You have to ask him. The Bible says that if anybody has need of wisdom, seek it from the Lord. It says that the Lord gives abundantly and without reproach. That means that he's not going to measure out with a teaspoon. No, he's going to give you enough to just overwhelm you with instruction, wisdom, knowledge, understanding. And I believe that many of the struggles that we fight, fight in life are simply artificially induced by God to teach us how to battle, how to fight, how to become stronger, how to become more intelligent, how to become more lucid in the struggles of life. And that's why God puts us through these psychological dramas to teach us how to do battle. And God's people need to learn to do war. The Bible says that, that when the Israelites came into the promised land, God did not take away all of the armies of the enemy because he wanted them to experience war. Now, this is Bible speak. And sometimes God allows the enemy, you know, in controlled sorts of ways to come against us, to teach us warfare, to make us stronger. And that we can share these insights with others as well. And so all of this stuff, you know, implicated. And this idea, you resolve to inquire of the Lord. Always seek. Don't lose that teaching, though. Inquire. And when you inquire, expect. I have seen the God who gives wisdom and knowledge. And who instructs us in the night. And he teaches us how to engage in the struggles of ministry and of life about insight, about our own life, the demons that we are fighting against ourselves all the time. God wants us to have psychological insight. He wants you to become a lucid understander, if you will, of the reality that you live, who you are in God. And this is what warfare does many times. Don't run away from warfare. I don't like warfare. I hate it with a passion. But I know that God has used it always to just uh, steal me and to sharpen me and to humiliate me and to make me aware of my brokenness and my utter need of his grace and those are good things and uh, struggle and, and, and war bring you into that if it is fought in the spirit and in the principles of the kingdom of God so he resolves to inquire and what he does is he proclaims a fast fasting is a, is a lost art and fasting has become too primitive for many sophisticated Christians in the 21st century. But it is absolutely necessary. Fasting, prayer, supplication, 
Travailing. These are good old Pentecostal words that need to be recovered. Fasting is the most primitive thing you can ever be engaged in. It doesn't get more primeval than that. Withholding food to underscore a petition. That's what fasting is. Withholding satisfaction to make your brain so alert that your words will have a sharpness that they wouldn't have normally. When you're, when you're full and your stomach, all the energy is going to the stomach to digest. All of a sudden there's a lucidity that comes upon you. And you can see things better. You can understand. You can hear better. I remember when I was doing my doctoral dissertation, I had spent five years almost mired in the pastorate. And maybe I have, I, I've alluded to that another time. And, um, you know, I was losing the fight uh, I, for my doctorate. I had spent years away from the university. And I, I went back to do my dissertation, which is the only thing left for me to do. Maybe also there was another thing, but story there. And, um, you know, I resolved to go ahead and, and finally wage the fight for my dissertation, for my doctorate. I was going to lose it. I had not been in the classroom for years just because pastoring had overtaken me. And as I say, I'm going to finish because, uh, you know, it will go on with the passage at some point when I go back from Israel. Maybe I'll be even more inspired when I come back. <laughs> but after Engedi, I'll come back and I'll, I'll finish it. But, you know, the, the thing is this, that uh, in this, this is an illustration for you to understand. The God who gives insight and who counsels us. And so, you know, I... I uh, had, I had lost my contacts at the university with my professors. My uh, doctoral uh, advisor had gone to Columbia University. Um, I, had, I'd been, I had been AWOL for several years. And my sharpness, my, my academic sharpness was just lost. And um, the Lord, first of all, induced a despair in me that I had to finish that dissertation. I could not live with the psychological wound of having lost my doctorate after having put so much into it. And so um, I decided to go ahead and start working on the dissertation. You know what happened? The strangest thing happened. I lost all appetite for meat. Except, I, just to be exhaustive, I did eat fish every once in a while. And... Um, but I was the most carnivorous person you would have ever met. I had tried many times, you know, idealistically to, to become a vegetarian because it appealed to me. You know, aesthetically, I like the idea of being a vegetarian. But my appetites were just too strong. So I would be defeated over and over again. A few weeks after trying, I would make up for every day that I hadn't eaten meat very quickly. I had no self-discipline. But then when, when the time came to do this dissertation, I could not get away from my pastoring work. I couldn't just say to the people, hey, guys, hold off and let me get into this. No, I had to, I had to continue pastoring, just beginning my pastorate pretty much around 88, 80, yeah, early 88, late 88. And so I, I needed to work full time as a pastor. I needed to do a dissertation. I couldn't do a dissertation in the laborious way that dissertations are done by submitting one chapter. It's given back to you. You submit it again. It's given back to you three, four times. I didn't have the time for that. I didn't have the temperament for that kind of process either. That's the way you do a dissertation. So I had to do it quickly, economically, in an agile sort of way. 
And all of a sudden, this aversion to meat overcame me. I could not eat meat. I could not eat anything, red meat of any sort or anything like that. To the point that if I, could, if I tasted a spoon that had been put in meat, I, 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 it repelled me. I didn't know where that came from. But I, I understood as time went by that the, the amount of energy and of insight that I needed, the intellectual energy that I required to do this task was such that it required perpetual fasting until I completed the task. The Lord entered me into a fast supernaturally to give me the knowledge, the lucidity that I required, the energy to finish this um, dissertation. And so for the glory of God, not for the glory of man, I tell you this. Sometimes I hesitate to share these things because people might think that somehow I'm trying to boast. But no, for the glory of God, in six months I was able to write close to 500 pages for a Harvard dissertation, which is no little thing. Without an advisor, people thought that I was crazy to do a dissertation without uh, the perpetual counseling of an advisor. They would look at me with pity. This poor, deluded kid, what is he getting himself into? But I had no other way of doing it. It had to be done quickly and, and uh, in good fashion. So the thing is that, you know, I, I, that fast, I remember, I would... I would go to bed sometimes at 3 a.m. in the morning writing. I would think writing. I would, I, I would uh, dream my topics. I wrote as I thought. I finished the dissertation in six, seven months at the most. I would practice my pastorate full time. I would get up at 5, 6 o'clock, 3, 4 hours of sleep. And it just allowed me to continue like that for a long time. All the time that that uh, fasting lasted. I was able to hand my dissertation in. I was hoping that, you know, the professor would be offended. Why is this guy doing that without going through the process? They accepted my dissertation for the glory of God. There was practically no corrections made, and they proclaimed it a very good dissertation for his glory. For his glory. They accepted it fully. And I understood at the end that God sovereignly had put me into a fast because that's what fasting does. It gives you supernatural power, supernatural courage, supernatural insight. Fasting is good for everything. You practice it as a half a day, a day, a weekend, 40 days. Learn, become a master in that. That, that art of fasting is not... It's not dated. It's, it's, it's perpetual. It's, it's timeless. It, it accomplishes extraordinary things. Besides, you lose weight. What can be wrong with that <laughs> in the 21st century? But, you know, the God who gives strategy, the God who gives illumination for the battles. Jehoshaphat didn't have, he, he could not aspire to any weaponry that could do away with the enemy. He could not get himself away from that crisis. He needed to appeal to God. We will see the rest later on. But I want us to understand, and maybe the, the, the one thing that the Lord is telling us today is, you are at war. We are at war. The church is at war more than ever. The human womb is in travail right now. Not just here in America, but all over the world. You hear about populism and about Brexit and about... Uh, 
you know, the European Union and migrations all over the world. The world is in travail all over. Something is happening in the womb of mankind. And people, intellectuals are silly enough to think that it's just a matter of economics and displacement of populations and resentments of uh, exploited groups, unrecognized groups and petty evangelicals trying to get their way. They cheapen the sublimity, the, 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 the extraordinary importance of what is happening right now in the world. Struggle for life and death. God wants to do something extraordinary in the human realm now. And we are living every day within that drama. Every day. We don't understand it. We see news here and there. And we make the mistake of reducing it to just economic scope. No, this is about cosmos. This is about heaven and hell. God, Satan. The angels of hell fighting against the angels of heaven. Principles. Displacement of tectonic plates in the spiritual realm. This is what it's about. You and I are living that sublime reality. We need discernment to understand that. And we need the power of God. We need to parse this reality that we are living in, in the light of the Spirit, in the light of the principles of the Spirit. These teachings are just meant for that, to illuminate us. People of God, let your spirit be filled right now with a sense of the seriousness of what you are living and I am living. This church is living. And I say, Lord, take away the cobwebs from my mind, from the mind of my people. May we see reality with the sharpness that we need to see it. That we might walk in the sharpness that you need us to walk in. Let's bow our heads. Oh, Father, if I could concoct desperation right now, I would do it. Because we need to cry out to you in despair. Lord, give us a spirit of travailing. Give us holy desperation, Father. Jesus, awaken us. We, I ask for forgiveness, Lord, me. I ask for forgiveness for not living at the level of intensity, clarity, definition, resoluteness that I need to live as the leader of a people. I pray that you will make me uh, despairing in the spiritual sense of the word. Make my brothers and sisters militant, Father, the baby fat, we say, be gone in Jesus' name. The mediocrity, the comfort. We want to live with the mentality of warriors, loving warriors, waging warfare for the healing of the nations and of the broken and the captive and the blind, the oppressed. But make us lion-like. Make us dangerous to the forces of hell, Father. Sharpen our teeth. Sharpen our spiritual acumen, Lord. Put bitterness in our hearts. But the, the, the bitterness that comes from wanting and desiring you. And not having you. Being content with just symbols, Father. When we need to manage the real weaponry. Enough, Father, of the training wheels. We want to ride the bike completely legitimately so come Holy Spirit come Holy Spirit induce in us holy desperation 
this morning. Father, this is what you're speaking to us. Sharpness. Jesus, enter us into the promised land. No more of the manna and the tabernacle. We want, the, we want to worship in your temple, the real temple. We want to eat of the fruit of the promised land, Father. No more of the substitutes. We want new clothes. We don't want tents, Father. We want houses to dwell in. We don't want just the dew of the desert. We want to drink from wells that we have opened up, Father. Give us the real thing. Give us the real thing. Give us the real thing, Father. Jesus, we are tired of symbolism. We want reality. Come, Holy Spirit. Awaken your people. We're tired of routine. We're tired of program. We're tired of one, two, three. We want holy chaos, Father, which is more orderly than the order of men. We want great folly from God, which is much wiser than the wisdom of intellect. Come, Holy Spirit. Forgive us. Forgive us for making it hard for you sometimes, Father, to do what you want to do. But here we are, repentant, humbly seeking your glory. Have your way. Take us out of here with that desperation. Don't take us out of here fat and satisfied. Take us restless, attentive, looking around for the next assignment. May that be our lot, Father. We will celebrate it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you, people of God.